This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Budu from Axios Today, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. We knew it was coming, a mugshot taken in Georgia and scowl now seen around the world. It isn't just that he wants to look menacing, which is certainly true, and he has made that kind of face in photos for years and years and years. He doesn't want to look weak. This week's Roundup starts in Atlanta, but we've also got important news to catch up on from Milwaukee, Maui, and Jackson Hole in Wyoming. With us today for the Roundup is Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore. Libby Casey, Senior News Anchor from the Washington Post's Live Moments team. Libby covers politics and breaking events. And Idris Kaloun, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's start in Atlanta. Last night during prime time, Donald Trump was arrested at the Fulton County Jail on felony charges in connections with efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. In a first for his four indictments this year, the former president had his mugshot taken and it was released shortly after he left the jail. Benji, can you just take us through what happened last night? Well, this was the the big moment, the big arrest, uh, Trump. And we now have, you know, a playbook almost for what happens when Trump gets arrested in process, this being the the uh, fourth time. So he showed up to the Fulton County Jail. He was formally booked. He was fingerprinted. He was released after posting a $200,000 bond uh, with the help of a local bail bond company. And then, of course, he had the uh, the famous or infamous mugshot, which was released shortly after he left the jail. It was not clear at the time whether it would come out that night, but it ended up coming out almost immediately afterwards. And as has kind of become his tradition after showing up to be arrested, he, he held a little gaggle with reporters as he was boarding his plane to leave Atlanta, where he said the charges were a travesty, and he said everyone has the right to challenge an election, and that, quote, I did nothing wrong. Uh, And then perhaps the one thing that was very different this time is that he returned to X, formerly Twitter, where he had not been since he was banned shortly after January 6th, and uh, tweeted out, or I guess, what do they call it now, zeded out a uh, photo of the mugshot, along with a uh, uh, link to his website. So this was was all in the span of just a couple of hours. Can you remind us, Benji, who's now representing the former president in this particular case? Well, he has some new lawyers now. There's been a shakeup. Uh, a, a veteran criminal defense lawyer named Steve Sato is in. Uh, one of his current lawyers, I believe, named Drew Feinling, is out. Uh, he has a history of shaking up his his uh, legal teams on his various cases. There's always been, you know, rumors that various law firms avoid him, you know, as well. He's not considered the most easy client to deal with historically. And also, you know, it's notable some of his past lawyers have ended up having to be deposed in criminal cases, like like the one involving classified documents, or in Michael Cohen's case, convicted and jailed. And that you know, some of his co-conspirators in these. January 6th related cases are, in fact, people who were, you know, attorneys uh, who 
Trump claims were giving him valid legal advice. So it's uh, it's not not necessarily the greatest client to have. Libby, here in D.C., hours before the former president showed up, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, weighed in with an announcement relevant to this Georgia investigation. What and who does Jordan want his committee to investigate? Yeah, just like Benji said, there's a playbook almost now for how this indictment process and booking process of Trump goes. There's now a playbook for how congressional Republicans respond. And Jim Jordan's the head of the judiciary chair. He's done this before in other investigations. But he sent a letter yesterday, just hours before Trump had his booking, uh, saying that he wants all the communications between uh, Fonnie Willis's office, the DA in Fulton County, and the Justice Department, including Jack Smith, right, the federal uh, special counsel. Also, he wants information about whether uh, there is uh, federal funds going to that office, what they might be used for. Uh, Now, this is something that The deadline for compliance is September 7th. Um, But Fonnie Willis has made it clear that she's not in coordination uh, with Jack Smith's office. In fact, uh, Atlanta Public Radio Station, shout out to WABE, interviewed her and she said, I wouldn't even know him if he was standing next to me. And she joked that he probably doesn't even know how to pronounce my name. So this is Republicans going on defense trying to protect Trump. It's important that it's House Republicans, not Senate Republicans. And this is just part of their aggressive playbook. Benji mentioned uh, the tarmac presser, but not all of those arrested this week spoke to reporters after showing up at Fulton County's jailhouse. But former New York mayor and Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani did with a huge sign behind him saying clown car coup. Giuliani maintained he was only doing his job. This indictment is a travesty. I'm being prosecuted for defending an American citizen who I do as a lawyer. And five other lawyers are indicted. That should tell you right away that this is a, an assault on our Constitution. Conservative lawyer John Eastman, one of Trump's 18 defendants, turned himself in on Tuesday. My legal team and I will vigorously contest every count of the indictment in which I have been named and also every count in which others are named, for which my knowledge of the relevant facts, law, and constitutional provisions may prove helpful. I am confident that when the law is faithfully applied in this proceeding, all of my co-defendants and I will be fully vindicated. Idris, legal experts aren't expecting all of the 19 charges are going to end up before the court. What signs, if any, have we seen some of the alleged co-conspirators have started talks with the DA that could give them immunity in this case? Well, we know that generally with uh, racketeering cases, uh, and in this case, uh, Fannie Willis charged uh, 19 people uh, with participating in the scheme, that the general trend is to try to uh, flip some folks uh, and get them to testify. Um, I don't think that we know yet whether or not that will materialize, but we do know that there are probably going to be not 19 separate trials that, that are conducted. Uh, Fanny Willis is trying to move with uh, quite a lot of speed. She said that she wants to do uh, all of these trials within the next six months. Uh, and some of the people who are charged are even arguing that they want to do it. I think David Schaefer, uh, the chair of the Georgia uh, Republicans, wanted to do it even sooner uh, as a sort of challenge. Um, For others, of course, uh, including the president, they will want to delay this as much as they can and are already seeking to basically remove the case from the state court jurisdiction and into uh, the hands of the federal courts. And to Idris's point about speed, 
Kenny uh, Cheesebro, one of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia RICO case, filed a motion on Thursday asking for a speedy trial. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has called that filing, quote, the legal equivalent of throwing a bomb into the case. Benji, can you explain why this is such a big deal? Well, because they're all being tried together, the the defendants, and because uh, defendants have a right to request a speedy trial in, in Georgia, um, some were speculating that this move by Cheeseboro was kind of a, a move to prove that the uh, that Fannie Willis isn't ready to go to go to trial and that she'll have to delay it. Uh, she, she, they need more time to prepare. But in fact, the opposite happened, where she said, "Yeah, sure, we'll we'll go to trial within two months in October." Um, and a judge ruled that, uh, okay, yes, you can have a speedy trial for a cheeseboro, but it, it would be separate. It doesn't mean that, for example, Donald Trump has to go on trial in October or, or the rest of him. So it increases the odds you might have separate trials. Um, but of course a cheeseboro trial would be a big sign of how future trials might go if you have that resolved potentially within the next few months. Idris, last week, Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, filed a motion to move his case to a federal court. Other co-defendants have asked for the same. What's the status of those requests? Yeah, so you can request, as Meadows has and Trump will, uh, that cases be removed to a federal court. And to do that, they would need to prove not only that they were federal officers, but that they were acting uh, under color of their office when they did the actions alleged. Um, uh, Meadows, the chief of staff to Donald Trump, uh, had uh, requested an injunction prohibiting Fannie Willis from arresting and charging him. Uh, that request was denied by a federal judge who said that while the question of whether or not these proceedings will be moved to a federal court is still ongoing, uh, there is no reason that the state court could not proceed uh, with its claims. And we saw that the DA filed a pretty aggressive uh, counter motion as well, uh, which the judge seems to have accepted. Now, there are a few reasons why Meadows and Trump might want this to go before a federal court. Uh, For one, that means that uh, any appeals would route up through the circuit court and then eventually possibly the Supreme Court, where perhaps they think that they have a better shot of winning an appeal. Uh, Federal conviction is one that can be reversed by a president and pardoned, whereas state convictions in Georgia can't even be pardoned by uh, the governor himself. Uh, And third, they might think that there's a, a more favorable jury pool in the federal court that surrounds Atlanta as opposed to uh, in Fulton County, where this prosecution is anticipated to take place. And so the expectation is we'll hear more on this next week? Yes, definitely. I think it'll be an ongoing issue. We're going to head to a quick break. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about Wednesday night's TV debate. To quote our colleague from CVS News, the first GOP debate of the season, quote, felt like a job interview in which there's already an internal candidate. That was John Dickerson's take. Benji... 
How many people were there, and did anyone on stage make a mark, you think? So there were uh, eight people there who met the RNC's qualifications, where you have to have a minimum number of donors and polling. It was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. You had businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, Mike Pence, who needs no introduction, Chris Christie. You had North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum and uh, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. And I think this is unusual almost compared to some debates in that, one, Trump wasn't there, so you're missing the most important name. Uh, But also, there wasn't one huge consensus winner or loser or disastrous moment or standout moment. The candidates all had significant space to get out their basic message here, introduce themselves, uh, put on their best face. And uh, in front of what so far has definitely been their largest audience, about 13 million people uh, uh, tuned in. So I think it is a pretty significant moment in that it is an invitation for Republican voters here to imagine a Republican Party led by someone other than Trump without them being constantly interrupted uh, by Trump news or by Trump himself in this case. Uh, And I think that is a new thing. Obviously, Trump is leading by huge margins in the polls. But if we see any impact from these debates, I think it'll be because voters are getting an unvarnished look at some alternatives they might not have considered. You can email your comments to 1A at WAMU.org. We just got this one from Amy, who said, It was wonderful to see other viable options for leadership in our country. I'm an independent, and I think Nikki Haley showed she was the most electable person on the stage. On the show yesterday, we also heard some consensus from our listeners and our guests that former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley did well, and she had moments like this that attracted praise from the left and the right. You have Ron DeSantis, you've got Tim Scott, you've got Mike Pence. They all voted to raise the debt. And Donald Trump added $8 trillion to our debt. And our kids are never going to forgive us for this. And so at the end of the day, you look at the 2024 budget, Republicans asked for $7.4 billion in earmarks. Democrats asked for $2.8 billion. So you tell me who are the big spenders. I think it's time for an accountant in the White House. Libby, that said, Nikki Haley needs more than one good debate. Polls have her at about 3 or 4%. How much do those polls matter this far out? Well, she will tell you that they don't matter, but that's the message you hear from a candidate who's not doing well in the polls. You know, the Washington Post conducted a poll with 538 and Ipsos of potential Republican caucus and primary voters, and Haley actually showed the most improvement in terms of um, those polled about who would consider voting for her. I'm hearing people who are moderates, uh, who are open open-minded about candidates like her. But here's the challenge. This is a Republican primary. And the problem will be getting that message to stick with Republican primary voters. She still has a long way to go. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was also center stage, but he wasn't the one that was lighting up the room. That was businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. And he seemed to get under the skin of his rivals. President Trump, I believe, was the best president of the 21st century. And Chris Christie... Honest to God, your claim that Donald Trump is motivated by vengeance and grievance would be a lot more credible if your entire campaign were not based on vengeance and grievance against one man. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. I mean, look, Joe Biden has weakened this country at home and abroad. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. Idris, 
How much, how surprised were you that Ramaswamy was getting so much attention from the other candidates during this debate? Um, I wasn't that surprised. I've interviewed him a few times over the years back in 2021 when he uh, published his book, Woke Inc., that uh, really catapulted him, I think, to some attention. Um, And he's a really bright guy. Uh, I think his views have changed um, over time. But what you see, I think, is the irritation there uh, from people who have been elected, uh, serve people like Mike Pence, who spent years and years done everything you should, become a congressman, become a governor, become vice president. Um, and then you have a 38-year-old who has a slightly whiny tone, uh, and it gets under their skin. But what was interesting to me is, is quite how much he's blown up over the last few years, um, sorry, last few months. You know, he was polling at 2% in June, uh, and now he's polling at 10%, uh, roughly in the 538 polls. Uh, He's almost caught up to Ron DeSantis, and I think that he has actually managed to do uh, the Ron DeSantis playbook uh, better than DeSantis himself. He's, I think, captured the enthusiasm of the online right in a way that DeSantis tried to by launching on Twitter, uh, which obviously failed uh, a bit dramatically. And he's got the whole Ivy League thing going for him in a way that DeSantis, who went to the same schools that, that he did, uh, just hasn't seemed to be able to. And it was amazing to me. I'd be curious what the others thought. How much DeSantis, despite being clearly the second place uh, finisher in the polls, uh, felt like a just a kind of backdrop to the drama that was going on on the stage. Yeah, his main goal was not to mess up, right? Don't have a viral moment. DeSantis' cli- main goal. Okay. Absolutely, to be clipped later. But there, there's that safety, right? That's playing safety. He did not answer so many questions on important issues. He, he refused to be pinned down on abortion, for example. Uh, and so while playing it safe may have worked to not have this disastrous viral moment clipped, it did not work to shine. We got this comment from Brian in Santa Barbara. Vivek Ramaswamy is not a leader. He's a capitalist who hungers for a podium. He touts networks, not policies. He's self-motivated and not at all a public representative. Benji, what is Ramaswamy pulling for here, playing sort of like the Trump surrogate in this debate? Well, Trump has certainly liked him. <laughs> he has definitely enjoyed his rise. And part of the reason is that you know, Ramaswamy has been you know, defending him at every at every step lately. In fact, one of the things that has annoyed some of the candidates on stage that Chris Christie was trying to bring up is that even, you know, he's renounced even past criticism of Trump over January 6th, for example. Uh, but Ramaswamy, I've interviewed him as well. Uh, he, he's very much positioning himself as an heir to Trump. Basically, if you liked Trump, here's a person who has tried to come up with a perfect intellectual distillation of Trumpism that's based on a series of principles. You know, he's put out kind of like an almost Ten Commandments style list that, that, that he's been putting out there. Um, and that he will thus have a more kind of, you know, ideological version of, of Trump um, that, that's more competent, perhaps. But it is not very critical of Trump in general. It, it is very much seen as, you know, if you like him but you want something new, this is the new thing. Um, as opposed to the other candidates, even someone like Ron DeSantis, who has been somewhat reluctant to go after Trump on various issues, has been, you know... Uh, more aggressive about at least trying to differentiate himself more and, you know, and say there are real differences. He went after his COVID response in the debate a bit. Uh, Ramaswamy is really trying to tie himself to Trump much more. Sticking with the debate, the candidates were pressed on their views on abortion and why it's been a losing issue for the GOP since the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. Here's one exchange between former Vice President Mike Pence and former Governor Nikki Haley. 
Can't we have a minimum standard in every state in the nation that says when a baby is capable of feeling pain, an abortion cannot be allowed? Don't make women feel like they have to decide on this issue when you know we don't have 60 Senate votes in the House. Seventy percent of the American people support legislation but to ban abortion of the after Senate a baby is capable not. of experiencing okay. pain. Benji, can you translate that exchange for those of us who may be not as familiar with all the Washington dynamics that Nikki Haley was outlining there? Yeah. So this is one of the most interesting moments of the night for me is the exchange over abortion because Republicans are struggling right now. They they are losing election after election related to abortion. No one's come up with any solution for how to talk about it or what policy to put forward that, that voters will seem to accept or that will neutralize the issue. So here they are arguing over the big divide among the candidates, which is whether to pursue a national ban on abortion. The major anti-abortion groups are calling for a a ban on abortion after 15 weeks at the federal level. And Mike Pence says wholeheartedly embrace this. Tim Scott sort of danced around a little before endorsing it too. And he talked about it very clearly in the debate. Um, Ron DeSantis has danced around this. His position's not, not totally clear on a lot of abortion issues. And Nikki Haley has tried to stake out a sort of middle ground within the anti-abortion movement, which is basically saying she's pro-life. She was a pro-life governor. Um, of course, she's dedicated to the cause of of reducing or ending abortion. But realistically, there is no Republican Congress, House or Senate that is going to get an abortion ban passed anytime soon. This is a long term, you know, decades long movement if you're going to do that. It's reminiscent in a little way of, I know, a very different topic, the Medicare for all debates for Democrats in 2020, where all Democrats would say they agree with the goal of universal health care. But some would say, why waste time talking about some, you know, bill that would take over the entire healthcare system and never pass when you could talk about incremental reforms that are more popular and less divisive and more likely to actually happen? You're seeing a version of that now with abortion and Haley staking out her side very clearly. Libby, at this point, the candidates are looking to win the primary. I wonder how um, Nikki Haley's comments would be received from the wing of the party that has the strict position on abortion and how much how that how she's trying to kind of balance that right now. Yeah, I mean, they're not receiving it well. They're applauding Tim Scott. They're applauding Mike Pence and they're applauding Asa Hutchinson for being clear on that 15 week ban. Um, but this is the thing that Nikki Haley's trying to brand herself as, right? She is literally an accountant. She served as a governor and she served under the Trump administration. So she's trying to say to people, I can bring the practical and the real to this. She's also trying to say, as a woman, I'm staying out of the fray as these boys on the stage fight a little bit. Um, The challenge, once again, though, is how do you appeal to the Republican base? And what are they all positioning themselves for, right? Is Vivek Ramaswamy running for 2028? Is Nikki Haley running for VP? She says no. Tim Scott is positioning himself more aligned with Donald Trump, criticizing him less. But, you know, in order to beat Trump, this field has to winnow down, right? When it's so scattershot and spread out, uh, there's just not a cohesive one. There's not one candidate that can stand up against Trump. Now, it was refreshing to see debate happening. And abortion was a great example of how we really did see not only where the candidates stand, but how they were willing to go on the line and say, look, I'm willing to, you know, put myself out here on this position or I'm not. And we were at least able to see this last week because it wasn't just one massive Trump food fight. Right. And we also saw Fox News anchors asking the stage for raised hands if they believe in climate change. A question from a young Republican on that front. Idris, how did that go? 
Um, well, uh, DeSantis, from my memory, interrupted that question and uh, interrogated it. And then Ramaswamy started talking about how the climate change agenda uh, was a hoax. Um, but there was a bit of a, a debate. And then I, from my memory, Nikki Haley then jumped in and said, uh, well, you know, climate change is real. Uh, I think that there is agreement uh, among all of the candidates on the stage that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, what Doug Burgum called, I think, in one of his only uh, lines that, that's memorable, the Inflation Creation Act, uh, was a mistake. Uh, and they all blame, I think, the climate change agenda uh, for some amount of, of inflation. Uh, you know, none of them would have passed the Inflation Reduction Act. They all uh, say that the path to American prosperity is, is hydrocarbons. Uh, that's a little bit different from, I think, where the Republican Party was maybe 10 years ago, where you know you had senators go onto the floor with snowballs and say that this proves that climate change doesn't exist. Uh, but it's still not going to be a big green uh, Republican Party, uh, as we saw on the stage. Libby, we're almost to the break. Uh, what else stood out from you from this debate? Well, it's that moment, the show of hands, where Brett Baer asks, if Donald Trump is convicted, would you still support him? And Two hands didn't really go up. Chris Christie did like this weird finger thing, but then said, you know, no, he would not support him. And Asa Hutchinson didn't. But the thing was that Ron DeSantis sort of looked around and like pulled the room before he decided where to go. And Trump's already like they cut that ad right away. Trump's team cut that and put that on social media right away to make hay of it. I mean, this is just showing not only where the candidates stand, but how decisive they're willing to be and how much they're willing to put themselves out there. And it's revealing if the if Trump is convicted, will they really support him? We're going to head to a quick break here, and we'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020, and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes, but a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Now let's get back to the roundup. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden visited the devastation in Maui caused by the deadly wildfires. Today is burned, but it's still standing. Trees survive for a reason. I believe it's a powerful, a very powerful symbol of what we can and will do to get through this crisis. And for this, for as long as it takes, we're going to be with you. The whole country will be with you. You know, uh, we will uh, be respectful of the sacred grounds and the traditions that rebuild the way the people of Maui want to build, not the way others want to build. We're going to rebuild the way the people of Maui want to build. 
Officials say at least 115 people are confirmed dead so far. Yesterday, Maui County officials released a list of 388 people still unaccounted for. That's a significant drop from the 1,100 people estimated missing at the start of the week. Idris, let's start with that number. How did officials get down to that list of 388 people missing from 1,100? Um, Well, they've needed the help of the FBI uh, to get that list down. Uh, It's been, uh, as you said, a difficult process uh, for them. There are, at the moment, a thousand state and local search and rescue uh, uh, officials and personnel uh, on Maui. There are an additional 2,000 who are working on this. Uh, But it has been slow going to even get this list down to the point of of 400 or so. Um, And there are a few reasons for that, Um, you know, Maui is is fairly remote. Uh, there's a lot of wilderness to get through. A lot of the cars that were on the island uh, were burnt, and unfortunately, the the fires were so hot that identification of of remains is is very tough. In some cases, uh, personnel are working with ashes only. The other issue has been that uh, DNA collection from relatives that is needed to generate a match has been pretty slow going. I think last I read, there were only about a hundred families um, whose DNA had been collected for this purposes, and that's slower than in other natural disasters and the rate there. So that's been a limiting factor as well um, on identification. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, even though at 115, it's already the deadliest wildfire that America has seen in a century, it's very likely that some of those on that list uh, are are also deceased. And so the death toll is expected to rise. Right. Idris, do we know what what have officials said about how many people um, out of those 388 people still missing if we know how many of them eventually may end up being classified as fatalities? You know, I, I think that they're they're not willing to, to speculate on that. And there was also, I think, some internal disagreement on releasing that list because they knew that um, for some families that would be the notification that, uh, that the person was probably deceased. But I don't know the exact kind of estimate that it will, it will prove to be. Mm-hmm. Investigators are still determining the cause of the deadly blaze, and the local utility may be making that more difficult. Libby, your colleagues at the Washington Post are reporting that power company Hawaiian Electric removed power poles and other equipment from an area officials are investigating. How is that investigation going, and what repercussions could Hawaii Electric face for moving evidence? Yeah, this is tough. So uh, ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, is investigating this, which is a little bit unusual. Usually it's the fire, the Forest Service, but because this is not on that kind of land, this is an ATF investigation. And this is a forensic analysis, essentially. I mean, you think about how they need to reconstruct what happened. The fact that, according to records the Washington Post has obtained, the utility company has removed uh, damaged power poles, other equipment, it will make piecing what happened harder. And now the company's defending its actions and, and saying that they will have access, ATF will have access to any kind of documentation, photos, anything else they need. Um, but it's going to complicate the investigation. And uh, we're all really watching to wonder exactly how much harder that will be. The power company is under so much scrutiny because, as the Washington Post has reported, there is the the belief now that the utility did not shut off its power lines in advance of those high winds. Let's talk about the rebuilding effort. On our show on Wednesday, we spoke with Lynn R. Goldman. She's the dean of the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. Uh, and she explained why rebuilding needs to be led by Hawaiians. The native Hawaiian people themselves 
have had so much taken away from them in terms of their independence and their culture, um, and in many cases, their language. And it's very important that authorities be very respectful of their needs, their desires, their wishes as Lahaina is to be built. Benji, we heard the same message from the president. What does the rebuilding process in Hawaii currently look like? Well, they're still just getting started. But as you mentioned, President Biden tried to reassure locals that they are going to keep them in mind. There's a lot of concern in addition to, you mentioned, the the native and indigenous issues, just the idea that large developers in general might take advantage of the situation to, you know, buy land under distress from residents. And that next thing you know, you have a, a Lahaina that's that's completely unrecognizable by the time it is rebuilt. So that is definitely a concern they're taking in. But obviously, climate change is also going to factor into this uh, in terms of disaster resilience in general. Um, researchers from insurance companies, you know, who have to decide whether and at what prices to insure future homes are doing a, a kind of after action report where they're trying to figure out which structures survive better, which features uh, helped uh, homes and buildings get through the fire uh, for safety reasons, but also for you know, monetary reasons, for insurance reasons. Uh, you know, uh, states and states like California and Florida that have seen repeated disasters often are more difficult to insure. And so I think you're going to see this be a factor in rebuilding, not just in Hawaii, but in, in coastal communities around the country. Benji, what are we hearing from the Biden administration on this? I mean, there's been so much conversation around, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act and how that affects for climate change. What about for disaster relief? Uh, well, they've been, uh, by all accounts within Hawaii, there was some criticism of Biden's, you know, no comment at one point after he previously commented on the Hawaiian disasters. Uh, but in general, uh, folks in Hawaii, officials there have been largely praising the federal response. They say that they've been there pretty quickly with resources from FEMA, that they have not been denied things, that they've been using federal resources in search and rescue early on, uh, you know, things like helicopters. Uh, so in general, there hasn't been a lot of complaint there that as as we discussed a little earlier, though, the focus and the focus of people's ire has been much more internally on the state on whether things like uh, early warning systems, you know, Hawaii has extensive warning systems that are usually meant for other disasters like tsunamis, whether why those didn't function properly, uh, why things like cell phone communications didn't didn't function properly. So I think that's where more of the uh, the negative focus has been lately. Libby, I know a lot of your colleagues have been on the ground um, reporting on this. What are they hearing from Hawaiian NGOs and local leaders about the support that they need for rebuilding? I mean, it's just the start. And a big concern is that issues that uh, the Native people have been working on for a long time, water rights, housing, things like that, could just get sort of brushed over or lost in this process because there's so much that needs to be done. So the goal is to try to do this in a smart and thoughtful way. Um, but it's federal response, obviously, at the state level. Um, but but it's going to be something that needs to be a holistic approach. You know, things like water rights are something that the indigenous people have been working on for so long, and that's going to be essential, not just to the rebuilding, but the sustainability of this community. And finally, let's turn now to the economy. Mortgage rates reached a 22-year high this week. According to Bankrate, today, the national average for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 7.58%. Idris, remind us why we're seeing such a spike in mortgage rates, please. 
Yeah, of course. Well, the Federal Reserve has been increasing uh, interest rates in the economy to try to tamp down uh, inflation. And uh, many things are tied to that rate, uh, corporate debt uh, among them. But also the thing that people observe the most is is those fixed uh, mortgage rates. You know, my wife and I bought a house um, a few months ago and we faced an eye-watering mortgage rate, but uh, it's better that we did it then than we are doing it now. Um, uh, but, you know, that, that consequence uh, does have uh, the consequences that, uh, you know, the economy does slow down. Home buying will slow down, um, although the housing market has been somewhat resilient. Um, as well. Uh, But what we're also going to see is that uh, people are probably not going to be moving, especially if they've already bought in, um, you know, at the COVID rates, which were 2 or 3%. Libby, Idris just gave us a very real-world example, right, of how this is affecting the housing economy. How else are we going to see this ripple out when we're just talking about real estate? Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing overall purchase demand of of housing down 26% from the same week last year. I mean, people are going to be frozen into their homes. If they're fortunate enough to own a home, it's almost like handcuffs, right? You don't want to let go of that low interest rate that you're locked into. Um, But the problem is rent is going up. We're seeing increasing inflation. Jerome Powell is speaking... Um, in Jackson Hole at the Federal Reserve gathering. And so um, there's this real concern about, uh, you know, okay, buying a house might be tough, but renting a house is also difficult. Right. And we um, could get answers about rising rates soon. Additional interest rate heights might still be on the table. And oh, actually, we've got the latest from Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. He's saying additional interest rate hikes are still on the table and rates could remain elevated for longer than expected. Speaking at the Kansas City Fed's annual economic symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Powell said, quote, Although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high and we are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate. Idris, are we going to hear more of that this weekend and how is the market going to react to that? Um, Yeah, I think this is going to be the topic that consumes uh, uh, all the economists who are lucky enough to be gathering in Jackson Hole. Uh, obviously, this has not only ramifications for um, the housing market, but also private equity markets, stock markets, et cetera. They all will be hanging on the words that Jerome Powell uh, will be saying. And, you know, he anticipates there that, uh, you know, the American economy has been stubbornly resilient. Uh, that's why it's overheating. That's why inflation has been so hard to tamp down. Uh, so I think that there will probably continue to be a period of elevated rates. Um, just looking at his comments now, um, he said at the end, as is often the case, we are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. Um, So I think the Western uh, atmosphere has gotten to him and he's waxed a little poetic uh, in his otherwise fairly staid remarks. All right. That's the Jackson Hole version of this, right? Benji, we heard so much about inflation during the debate. I wonder how you think this is going to play out, particularly on the campaign trail over the coming year. Well, inflation was definitely something that, especially in the midterms, came up nonstop. I mean, it was really the core of the Republican message against the Democrats. But then Democrats actually did pretty well that midterms, which is a huge shock to even a lot of Democrats themselves. And, you know, some of the issues that they raised around social issues like abortion, but also the rise of, of Donald Trump, his continued relevance within the party and, you know, a variety of candidates who election deniers, those ended up powerful messages, too. So I do think in the campaign trail, Republicans are still trying to figure out how they talk about this a little bit in a way that connects to voters and also shows that they have an actual plan, which was something that they usually did not attach to their inflation criticism in, in 2022. 
Uh, it'll be interesting how it plays out, but certainly on the Democratic side, they are doing their best to inoculate themselves from this. The early Biden ads are already out and the Biden campaign speeches. A lot of them are about how they have tried to lower costs in the very specific areas. For example, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices. That's something that's going to play very prominently, I'm guessing, in Democratic ads in 2024. Mortgage rates are up. So are sales to an infamously catastrophic festival. Six years after promising festival goers five-star accommodations and delivering FEMA disaster tents, Fire Festival is back and it's already sold out its first wave of tickets, according to the festival's website. It's unclear when it's happening, who's performing, or exactly where in the Caribbean it's taking place. Libby, Fire Festival founder Billy McFarland went to jail for fraud over the last festival. First of all, do we believe that people are actually buying tickets for this next one? I mean, there is the saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. But he released a video in which he seems to be wearing a bathrobe. Benji, did you catch that? Did you guys catch that? And he's talking about how his time in solitary confinement allowed him to come to this place where he's ready to do it all over again. But the details are scant. They have like a geolocator on the website that you can click on to find out where exactly this festival will be happening. It goes to the Caribbean Sea, like just the Caribbean Sea, full stop. It's a fairly large area. Yeah, not <laughs> it's not it's not a specific location yet. A lot of details yet to be worked out. Idris, is your recent home buying prohibited you from buying fire <laughs> festival tickets? Um, you know, actually, I think I'll skip my next mortgage payment and just put it all on a fire festival and, and hope for the best. I will tell you, you can get a T-shirt for only $40. Benji, anything to add on this? Well, I'd say let's just do it and be legends. <laughs> okay. Well, um, <laughs> my thanks this week go to Idris Kaloon, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist, Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief for Semaphore, and Libby Casey, Senior News Anchor at The Washington Post. Thanks to you all. If you haven't played Super Mario Brothers, oh no! Hi, I'm Charles Martinet. I have been the voice of Super Mario for 31 years. It's me, Super Mario! Woohoo! That's the voice of Charles Martinet from our Sounds of America series. This week, Charles, who's been the voice of the video game Mario for decades, announced he's stepping back from recording character voices for Nintendo. He's now a Mario ambassador. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but Charles, you've earned it. We'll be back with the most important news from around the world in just a moment. Stay with us. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.
With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Let's turn now to the global edition of the News Roundup. And once more, it's been a busy week of news. Investigators are at work on the site of the plane crash officials believe killed Russian mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin this week. We'll discuss what we know and what we don't know about what happened. Canadian authorities continue to battle more than a thousand wildfires across the country. And the prime minister slams social media giant Meta for prioritizing profits over safety. And all of India briefly united. The altitude is being brought down from 800 meters, and we are nearing and approaching the lunar surface. India became the fourth country in the world to land on the lunar surface, and now will begin exploration of the moon's south pole. All that and so much more with our panel of experts today. Nancy Youssef is national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for being here, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Along with James Kipfield, he's a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress and author of the book, In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Welcome, James. Great to be with you. And David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. David joins us from London this week. Hi, David. Hello. Let's start with the biggest news of the week, Yevgeny Prigozhin. It's believed the founder of the Wagner military company was on a jet that crashed Wednesday soon after taking off from Moscow. All seven people on the passenger list are presumed dead. James, what do we know about how this plane crashed? Well, we know it fell from the sky. There's really dramatic video that you can see online of of it tumbling from from the sky. The U.S. intelligence uh, has... Uh, reported that they think that it was an onboard explosion. Initially, it was thought that maybe a uh, surface there a missile had taken it down, but uh, that apparently was was not true. But they, it looks like it was an onboard explosion that took it down. Um, and he, you know, Bergozin joins a very long list of challengers and opponents of Vladimir Putin who uh, die mysteriously, whether it's in plane crashes or falling out of windows of third-floor apartment buildings or hospitals or being poisoned by Novacek. Um, and he, he looks like he's the latest in the long line of these, uh, of these people who, who cross paths, uh, cross swords with Putin and end up paying for it. Nancy, who else was on this plane? So we know his deputy was on it, including and as well as other members of the Wagner Group, which in and of itself was surprising given that um, there had been an assumption that he was in jeopardy. Uh, Putin, right after the attempted mutiny, exactly two months earlier, um, had said shortly after that that he was a traitor, which um, did not bode well for him. You heard publicly assessment from the U.S. that um, he was certainly in jeopardy. We also know that there was a second plane that after the first plane went down, uh, turned around. Um, and we don't know who's on that plane and what that says about um, the uh, security measures that the uh, Wagner group had put in place and knowing that this was a potential threat. But we know that people who I think we thought would have been likely successors were among those killed. And so there's as much interest as um, who was on that plane 
um, that went down and also on that second plane and whether we will start to see um, that amongst those who, who survived on the second plane are those who might try to lead this group and lead any possible um, response to this. Nancy, we're hearing conflicting information from U.S. officials uh, in U.S. intelligence sources about what they believe happened. What do we know? So one of the reasons that you're hearing that, I think, is that they, in my talking to U.S. officials, is that they've eliminated what they don't think it is, which makes it harder to figure out what is in some cases. What have they eliminated? Well, so one of the things that the U.S. um, can do pretty quickly is use heat signatures to determine if a surface-to-air missile went near that plane. They have them all over the world, and you can imagine the attention that they place in places like Russia. And so why – James mentioned earlier that we'd heard surface-to-air missiles. We heard that from the Wagner Group themselves on a telegram channel. But so far, the U.S. hasn't seen any evidence of that. So that's something that they could determine rather quickly. But without people on the ground, it's harder to determine what happened. They certainly have other sources, right? Their um, signals intelligence and other forms of spying that might lead to information. But it's hard to quickly make um, definitive conclusions, particularly since um, if you believe that the Russian regime was behind it, they have very little incentive to help that investigation. And so that's one of the reasons I think you're hearing some conflicting reports. It's a process of elimination and 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 there's limited intelligence to, to make um, quick conclusions about what happened. David, how unusual is it that a group so careful about security would send several of its top ranking officials all on one flight? I mean, that's an obvious risk, but I think it adds to, you know, additional mysteries about Evgeny Prigozhin's seeming confidence that he wasn't in danger of his life. Because remember, when the mutiny was originally uh, failed and uh, Vladimir Putin said in public that this was an act of betrayal or treason and everyone assumed that he was therefore in danger of his life, he went to Belarus, his troops went to Belarus, uh, the next door country, and we assumed that maybe they might have to stay there. But actually, not only has he been out and about in Russia, he's been down in Africa seeing clients of his mercenary group, the Wagner Group, and he even popped up meeting senior African officials and diplomats at a, at a, a Russia-African summit in St. Petersburg uh, in late July, where Vladimir Putin was also there. And so it has been a real mystery. Uh, for the last several weeks, how he felt so confident. And if you listen to some American officials, including some weeks ago, the head of the CIA, saying that Vladimir Putin is a man who takes his revenge cold. And you can speculate that that is what we have just seen as this plane fell out the sky. You took the words out of my mouth, (laughs) David. Here's CIA Director William Burns um, speaking about Prigozhin's fate. This is shortly after uh, this short-lived mutiny attempt against Vladimir Putin Burns speaking at the Aspen Security Council on July 20th. Putin is someone who generally thinks that revenge is a dish best served cold. So he's going to try to settle the situation to the extent he can. But again, in my experience, Putin is the ultimate apostle of payback. So I would be surprised if Prigozhin escapes further retribution for this. So in that sense, the president's right. If I were Prigozhin, I wouldn't fire my food taster. Let's hear what President Vladimir Putin had to say about this. On Wednesday, as reports were circulating about the crash, President Putin attended an event marking the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Kursk, where he praised Russian forces fighting in Ukraine. On Thursday, he broke his silence, calling the head of the Wagner mercenary group a, quote, talented businessman with a, quote, difficult fate. 
As for this plane crash, first I want to express sincere condolences to the families of all who have died. It is always a tragedy. And indeed, if there were people from the Wagner Company, as the initial reports suggest, I'd like to say they made a significant contribution to our common cause of fighting the neo-Nazi regime in Ukraine. Nancy, what are you what are US officials to make of this, particularly Putin's denials that he had anything to do with this? Well, um, I, th- I think it's an interesting approach because one could argue that if the regime was behind this, that they did it in a very brazen way. And that's not by accident, that that was a message to send to those who would think about questioning the regime. Putin has no incentive um, to to uh, ad- tie himself to this. And, and I think the message was sent arguably through actions, right, in the way that this plane came down. And so... Um, I think to your question, what U.S. officials would say, I think they would say it contributes to their feeling that, that, that the Russian leader um, is, is brutal and that um, he is running the state much, um, we've heard this term this week from other officials, that this feels more mafia-like than sort of like a government um, in the traditional sense in terms of running things. And I think that reaction sort of lends itself t- to that feeling. James, the question of what's next for the Wagner Group has been around since that failed mutiny in June. In a secret deal between Putin and Prigozhin, after that, it was rumored the Wagner Group had lost funding from the Russian government. But what does the future of this look like now with its illustrious head presumed dead? Yeah, it's a it's a point of great speculation, and the, the you know, short answer is no one's quite sure. But you know, after the the mutiny and and Prigozhin going to Africa, the thought was they you know that Wagner might sort of reconstitute in, in Belarus. Uh, there was a base there where they, they sort of showed signs of, of, of moving to and then focus on Africa. Uh, but there's also a lot of analysts who have covered Wagner very closely who think that it's going to be very hard for Wagner per se to, to survive the, the death of Prigozhin. He was very, very well liked by the rank and file. Uh, he was on the front lines with them in Ukraine and in Bakhmut. Um, so it's going to be difficult to, I think, for Wagner itself to to survive. But Putin will try to pick up the pieces. He, you know, that that influence he has through Wagner in Africa is very important to him. It's a source of revenue through gold mines and diamond mines. Uh, so I think that we're going to see eventually them try to pick up the pieces of Wagner. But whether it will be anything like the original, you know, very powerful, the world's probably most powerful you know, private mercenary militia, I, 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 there is some, there's some question about that. And one more piece of news from Russia before we move on. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkowitz's pre-trial detention was extended in Moscow this week. He's facing espionage charges, and the United States says he's been wrongfully detained. Nancy, can you tell us, first of all, just what this latest news was this week? Well, there was a, a uh, the Russian government asked for an extension um, hearing. He was supposed to have one sometime this month, and that was granted, um, extending his already too long stay in detention. And as you can imagine, it was a heartbreaking development um, for all of us who are his colleagues um, and for those who are working so hard to secure his release. As you noted, he was a journalist. He was a professional. He was doing his job. He was there um, accredited, and um, we're seeking his release and um uh, I don't know what to say other than it was um, it was a really heartbreaking development. It's something though I think we all have braced for, and and 
because there was no sign of um, movement towards his imminent release. And so I think um, it was reaffirming, reconfirming, I think, for us that the, the, the painful truth that this will be a months-long process, not one that could appear in, in the next few days or weeks. Do we know how Evan is doing, especially with this latest news? Uh, we get uh, limited um, reads, and I have to tell you, I've been struck by him, his strength. Um, I think so often when you think of someone in a crisis like this that um, he's turning to everyone around him, and I know that's true, but I have to tell you, he's been such a source of strength for, for those of um, us who are supporting him and has um, has just, every time we get a report, I, I'm always struck by the strength and the resiliency that he's shown um, while while in detention, that he has mentally steeled himself. And, um, and I have to say that um, he's been a real source of um, strength for all of of, of us, I imagine, I think, some, sometimes more than we are for him. In a statement released after the hearing, the Wall Street Journal said it was, quote, deeply disappointed that Mr. Gershkovich continues to be arbitrarily and wrongfully detained for doing his job as a journalist and called the accusations baseless and categorically false. The statement added that journalism is not a crime. Let's turn to Canada. You probably remember the pictures of heavy smog that blanketed the northeast U.S. this summer. Those were from wildfires in Canada that are still burning. There are more than 1,000 active wildfires in the country. Two-thirds of those are considered out of control. James, why has it been so hard to get these wildfires under control? Uh, in a word, climate change. I mean, the uh, ten, tens of millions of Americans are very familiar with these weather, weather patterns that, um, you know, these heat domes that sit over areas like we've had this summer um, with a lot of hot, dry air that pulls moisture from the ground, uh, creates droughts. This is this is perfect tinder for, for forest fires. Uh, Canada has is the second largest country on earth, and, it ha- and half of Canada are these uh, really often remote wilderness forests, and uh, they're hard for firefighters to get to. There's no access roads to get in there and contain these fires. So this year, already more than 4,000 of these fires Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called it apocalyptic. They they have now have sixty thousand Canadians under evacuation orders because of these fires. So um, we're we're seeing yet another um, you know a, a consequence of of this climate change, and uh, a lot of people are worried this is the new normal. On Monday, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke about the latest on these wildfires, and Facebook came up in the briefing. Here's what he said. Uh, Up-to-date information is unbelievably essential to keeping Canadians safe. That's why, and I'm going to make a comment on this, it is so inconceivable that a company like Facebook is choosing to put corporate profits ahead of ensuring that local news organizations can get up-to-date information to Canadians and reach them where Canadians spend a lot of their time online, on social media, on Facebook. That's after Meta started blocking news on its platforms for users in Canada this month because of a new Canadian law called the Online News Act. Meta is the parent company to social media platforms Facebook and Instagram. David, what's this Online News Act? Well, there's a long-running row between the news industry and the big tech companies like Google and Meta that basically 
instead of people getting their news by, say, clicking on a link to the Globe and Mail, the, the big Canadian paper, directly or paying a subscription, that a ton of Canadians, like a ton of Americans, they will go to their Facebook feed or they'll go to uh, Google and they will click on what looks like a link belonging to that newspaper, but the ad revenue goes to Google and to Meta, the owner of Facebook. And and so a lot of that money doesn't end up going to, uh, to the original newspapers and the number of people subscribing goes down and down and down. And so like other governments, the Canadians have been worried about this. And in June, they passed a pretty aggressive law that said that actually tech companies must start doing deals with media organizations to share some of those revenues. It'd be hundreds of millions of dollars a year. In response, Meta and Google took a very hard line and said, OK, then no more China, no more links on our sites to Canadian news content. And so what you are seeing, and that's what Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, is referring to, you are seeing Canadians who say use Facebook. They're having to post screenshots of, say, local media reporting about evacuations uh, or sort of uh, community groups saying this is how you get your pet uh, evacuated in the face of a, a wildfire. And Justin Trudeau is clearly showing his great frustration there that this commercial dispute is colliding with this major news event. Uh, and the lack of those news links on places like Facebook is really putting people, uh, he says, in danger. Did Meta respond to Prime Minister Trudeau's comments? Meta did. So they said, hang on, you know, 45,000 Canadians used Facebook's safety check to check in and say that they were fine. Uh, you saw 300,000 Canadians visiting government websites, emergency service websites. Now, of course, those aren't Canadian news sites. Those aren't local radio stations. So you can see that Meta is kind of pushing back. But you have to admit that right now it's not a good look for the tech companies to be putting this commercial dispute ahead of getting people accurate news, not just from government sites, but also from local news sites. And David, as you mentioned, other governments have had similar laws. I'm thinking of Australia. Did they also, did the platforms, did Google and Meta take these extreme steps in those countries? To be honest, I don't know what they did in Australia, but you're seeing Google and Meta trying to fight this battle of public opinion, saying that this is a link tax because they know that voters don't like new taxes. Um, and you're seeing a lot of news companies trying to decide whether to hang tough and fight global uh, tech companies like Google and Meta or whether to cut their own deals with them. And this is against the backdrop that an awful lot of media organizations are feeling the pain. And one of the figures that you see cited in the, in the Canadian debate is that something like 85% of Canadians get their news without paying a single penny in subscription revenues to any Canadian news organization. And so you're seeing newsrooms closing, not just in Canada, but all over places like America, all over the kind of the world where there is a free press. And so the tech companies are going to find themselves, I think, facing more of these laws. But of course, everyone's going to be watching the Canadian example and seeing who blinks first. Moving to elections, let's start in Latin America. Two candidates will go head-to-head -to, -head to be Ecuador's next president in a runoff election in October. Elections were held Sunday when leftist Luisa Gonzalez outpaced centrist Daniel Noboa, though neither won more than 50 percent of the vote. Just how close could this election be? Nancy, I'll turn to you. Well, it's interesting because in the polls leading up to Sunday's elections, it gave they gave Gonzalez a solid lead. But then exactly one week prior, there was a presidential debate in which Naboa um, appeared to voters make to make a compelling case because he really advanced quite rapidly. And the final figures for that first election were 33 percent for Gonzalez and 24 for Naboa. So um, the, the runoff is not until October 15th. And the question becomes, can Naboa kind of keep that momentum um, and and, and hold on to um, voter confidence on this message that he, as a business leader, um, can use private uh, investment to help the economy. 
or will um, Gonzalez's message that um, the legacy of um, uh, predecessors when um, Ecuador was um, stronger, both economically and, and in terms of security, is something that she can carry on to bring more stability to Ecuador. In a much less contested election, Guatemalan voters chose progressive candidate Bernardo Arevalo as their next president. He won 58 percent of the vote. His closest opponent won 37 percent of the vote. Here's an Arevalo supporter named Claudia. We are out celebrating the seed we planted with our vote, hoping it will flourish. James, does this landslide vote mean there will be a smooth transition of power? Let's hope so. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, the fact that it's a landslide makes it much less likely, I think, that there'll be some sort of a, you know, a government step in to try to, to block, you know, the peaceful transfer of power here. But I mean, I think this is one of the, you know, rare cases where we can take some optimism from a Latin American vote. I mean, it, it was a landslide. This uh, Arevalo was uh, very progressive. He he ran on an anti-graft, anti-corruption program. He's the son of the first democratically elected president in uh, Guatemala. And I think it shows that a lot of young people, especially in Latin America, are pretty fed up. I think both elections actually show this, are pretty fed up with this endemic corruption that is, that is you know, famously, uh, you know, pervasive throughout that region. Uh, they're fed up with the high crime, the, 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 the level of corruption by these drug cartels um, that have really got a lot of these governments in a tight grip. So to me, it's a very optimistic uh, outcome. And we'll, you know, we'll be watching very closely how that transition of power goes in the, in the days and weeks ahead. Let's move on to Africa. Voters in Zimbabwe went to the polls Wednesday. David, early parliamentary election results are in. Who's in power? Uh, the last I checked, the, uh, it was pretty much neck and neck between ZANU-PF, the ruling party, and the main opposition. ZANU-PF was slightly ahead. I had, I think, 38 constituencies the last count I saw compared to 32. I don't think there is any optimism that ZANU-PF, which has run that country with an absolutely uh, grip of iron for four decades, uh, is going to give up power easily. And there was a lot of very murky business uh, in this election, uh, which blighted its, its a parliamentary and a presidential election. And so although it is neck and neck for now, and you do have uh, you know, a, a relatively charismatic presidential opposition leader, Nelson Chamisa, there is very little confidence, I think, that this is going to be a free and fair election. And you saw a lot of very strange, you know, late printing of ballot papers. Uh, the government says that's because so many different candidates were challenging uh, their rivals in the courts. But nonetheless, even after the polls were supposed to have closed on Wednesday, you saw them printing ballot papers. So people going to the main polling stations in big cities and finding there were no ballot papers for them to vote. So the president then extended voting till Thursday night. You saw the police uh, arresting uh, over 40 election monitors uh, accusing them of planning to rig uh, the election in favor of the opposition. So it looks like another very dirty, very nasty Zimbabwean election. Washington's been buzzing with rumors of a Saudi-Israel normalization agreement brokered by the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has been spending a lot of time in the Middle East recently, specifically in Saudi Arabia. Nancy, what kind of negotiations are underway right now? Well, we haven't heard them publicly declare their terms, but basically it would be one where Saudi Arabia would recognize Israel. And each side is seeking something, broken, by the way, with help from the United States. The Israelis want more Saudi support in deterring Iran. And of course, uh, recognition by Saudi Arabia, the home of the two holy sites, opens up other Muslim-majority countries like Indonesia and Malaysia recognizing Israel. 
I think Washington wants to see Saudi Arabia be more in line with its with Washington and its rivalry against China um, to see a resolution in the war in Yemen. And the Saudis are seeking protection from Iran, from the United States in a form of a mutual defense treaty, and also uh, support for a civilian nuclear program. So everybody has something, but those stakes that I just spelled out are pretty high and very hard to achieve. And I think that's why you're seeing so many trips. And in, and in addition, you heard Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, in a briefing with reporters, um, I think, try to lower expectations. He described that it would be a big deal, but made it sound that it would be very, very tough and that they're in the very early stages of it. David, this week, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, said that a Chinese-mediated detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia was driving a, quote, wave of reconciliation in the Middle East. So let's start with that detente. What role did China play between Iran and Saudi Arabia? And what was the agreement? So to be fair, China did play a role uh, back in March. It hosted some fairly important meetings. Those talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia about resuming diplomatic relations that had been cut off sometime previously due to the really terrible relations uh, between those countries, including, let's not forget, the fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia are on different sides of a proxy war uh, in, Ira- in Yemen, which has been going on since 2015. But nonetheless, uh, after a lot of hard diplomatic work by a lot of countries, the Chinese came in in March and actually brokered uh, a pretty good you know, deal between the Iranians and the Saudis. Why are the Chinese pushing this idea of a wave of reconciliation? It is part of a broader push by the Chinese to present themselves as peacemakers. And the reason that they can be peacemakers around the world is that they are not fussed about things like human rights or universal values or who's a democracy and who's a dictatorship, that they are focused on economic development, on the kind of the basics of getting people richer, and that that makes China actually morally superior to America. And this big diplomatic push is actually having, in in lots of contexts, quite some success, particularly in these kind of swing voting middle powers like Saudi Arabia, or you can look at others like the Turks, uh, others who are quite interested in this kind of values-free, all about commercial interests Chinese offer. And so China is on the other end of Saudi Arabia's fascinating kind of game that is playing. It's talking to the Americans about potential reconciliation with Israel if America provides it with all sorts of security guarantees. At the same time, Saudi Arabia is investing much more money than before in China, building up enormous links, not just in things like selling oil, but also high technologies, but also geopolitically. It's trying to pivot itself to be this kind of non-aligned power between the Americans and the Chinese to see how much it can get from both sides. Let's turn now to a headline from the moon. This week, India became the first country to land on the moon's South Pole. The hard work of the entire ISRO community has come to fruition. Adarniya Pradhan Mandri Ji, Namaskar. Sir, we have achieved soft landing on the moon. India is on the moon. That clip was the control room at the Indian Space Research Organization, or ISRO, after the successful moon landing of the spacecraft Chandrayaan-3. We also heard a few words from F. Sonath, chairman of ISRO. James, India is the fourth country to land on the moon, the first on its South Pole. How significant is this moment for India? It's a it's a huge deal. I think most Americans can appreciate, you know, how how your space program, you know, achieving these really incredible breakthroughs is, is sort of can be an uplift for the whole country. Uh, I think this is something that's also very welcomed by the United States. I mean, we've been 
telling India for a long time that we would like to see it join the first ranks of, of geopolitical heavyweights uh, as a counterweight to China. And we don't say that to India, but with that's everyone understands that's the that's how it, the, we are perceiving it. And uh, they they did this with really a tiny fraction of the budget that NASA has, which shows that they're I mean they they are a high tech sort of heavyweight already. And this is just a you know as as, as Prime Minister Modi said, it shows that uh, you know the sky is not the limit anymore for India. So we're I think this is a huge moment for the country. It's it's the world's largest democracy. Something that uh, as we increasingly get back to a sort of Cold War uh, relationship with China and Russia, we're very happy to see India sort of come into its own at this time. Right. And Modi also called the landing a, quote, moment for a new developing India. I'm confident that all countries in the world, including those from the global south, are capable of achieving such feats. We can all aspire for the moon and beyond. Nancy, Modi's also up for re-election for a third term. His leadership has been fraught with criticisms against his policies, crackdowns on freedom and his nationalist Hindu party. How big is this moment for him? Well, I think it it signals on one hand that um, India can um, break through some of its fractious divisions to do big um, national accomplishments. But at the same time, that in and of itself doesn't guarantee that um, the instability brought by some of the political divisiveness under the Modi term – is resolved. And moreover, while um, there have been wonderful developments within India, there's also been, including the economic ones, it's not been enough to keep up with its population of uh, roughly 1.4 billion. And so um, I, I, one could argue that this is a moment that sort of um, uh, rejuvenates Indian nationalism and the Indian spirit. But is that enough to really um, overlook some of the economic and social challenges under Modi's term? Um, I think that'll be hard to say particularly since this is an election that is not happening until next year. Can you keep the enthusiasm and that momentum going for that long? I think it's yet to be determined. It's certainly a factor, though, in his message that he is here to um, elevate uh, Indian standing in the world, and this is the most demonstrative display of it, but it's not arguably enough to fix some of the concrete economic and social issues that have also happened under his tenure. And days before India's successful moon landing, Russia attempted to land its first spacecraft on the moon in almost 50 years. James, that mission was unsuccessful. Do we know what happened? It's not, you know, again, with most things, Russia, it's very difficult to get a, a, a clear picture. But, uh, you know, clearly having your having your uh, your, your lunar uh, vehicle crash into the surface of the moon is is not a good look for Russia. And I would also say that, you know, India's success comes at a time when when it's chief rival China uh, has had really big issues with its economy recently. And there's a lot of talk about whether the Chinese miracle that we've seen over the last two decades of 10% plus growth every year has come to an end and, and they're facing deflation much like Japan did decades ago. So I think this is a, this is a good moment for India and two of it, you know, certainly its major rival is struggling. And uh, we saw with Russia that, uh, you know, it, it's not an easy thing to land safely a vehicle on the moon, especially in the South Pole. 
Right. Speaking of China, David, you and your colleague at The Economist, Alice Sue, spoke to Chinese women who are single moms for your podcast, Drum Tower. Some of those women are sharing their stories on social media. Here's Alice describing one of their videos. So, David, what we're seeing here is Gavin Ye, Ye Haiyang, and she's sitting in a couch in this khaki jacket, looking straight at the camera and giving a very moving message. And it's a letter to her daughter. And she says, I have many jobs. I have a lot of work in my life. And one of my jobs is to be your mother. And then she mentions, I have another job, which is to be your father. Stephen, how are these women redefining what families look like in, in, in China? They're doing it by reaching out to public opinion, but they're also challenging the laws. So the reason we did this episode of the Drum Tower podcast is because you've seen some uh, court cases where uh, women who wanted to be solo mothers, who don't want to have to have uh, a man involved in having a kid, uh, sought to uh, freeze their eggs or to access in vitro fertilization kind of test tube babies. You can't do that legally in China unless you are married and in a heterosexual relationship because China is a communist country, but also a very socially conservative country. And you saw hospitals kind of going to court and their lawyers saying it's bad for society to have single mothers out there uh, with children or freezing their eggs. You know, you know, this will this will end badly for for Chinese society and values. And so we were looking at the fact that actually that the woman you just heard on video there, she's a wealthy entrepreneur. She had the money to go abroad and have her own uh, test tube babies uh, with a sperm donor, and that they're actually finding a real following among urban women. And this is part of a much larger story that as Chinese cities uh, fill with uh, much better educated, very self-confident women, they are pushing very hard against a socially pretty conservative Chinese view of what a family should look like. And the hope is that as the Communist Party panics about a shrinking population and declining marriage and birth rates, that maybe they'll realize that they can't have it all, that they're going to have to stop being so strict on single mothers and solo mothers if they want to have a growing population or even slow that decline in fertility. David, are we seeing any signs of those attitudes changing both in society as well as among the Chinese Communist Party? It's always baby steps with social reform in China. So we're seeing kind of Uh, unofficial, semi-official advisors saying that maybe if there's a single woman who's got some disease that means that she needs to freeze her eggs, maybe China should go down that path. But the problem is that as ever in China, what really counts is what the big guy, Xi Jinping, the supreme leader, says. And in every speech he gives about social issues, he takes a really conservative line, pushing traditional ancient Chinese values and basically nagging people to uh, form good, wholesome, traditional families and have more children. And so we're seeing more scolding, uh, some offer of kind of cash to women uh, who want to marry and have children. But the idea of actually letting people run their own lives, take their own more liberal, progressive decisions, there's not a lot of sign of that. And from what we've seen from the birth rates, that's not working. It's a really spectacular crash. And we actually just saw some numbers which looked like uh, the latest unbelievably low numbers. Remember that to have uh, basically a stable population, you need every woman on average to have just over two children during her lifetime, uh, during her sort of child-rearing years. There was a number released the other day and then quickly censored that was nearer to one. It was like 1.09, one of the, the lowest fertility rates in the world. We've also seen marriage rates collapse. And one of the fascinating drivers of this is that as Chinese women get much better educated, but they are still offered 
uh, a very chauvinist society, very chauvinist values about what their husband expects from marriage, what their in-laws might expect from marriage. They're just kind of going on strike and saying, well, if that's the deal, then I'm just going to have my own apartment, my own career, my own life, and I'm not taking part in that deal. And so if China doesn't open up and become more progressive, it is it is heading for a population, not just a decline, but a collapse. The leaders of BRICS met this week at a summit in Johannesburg to talk about expanding. BRICS is an acronym for the economies of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. BRICS is looking to build itself up country by country. And Iran and Saudi Arabia were among six countries that have been invited to join. James, South Africa has said 40 nations have expressed interest in joining BRICS. What are some of the concerns from the U.S. and its allies about a BRICS expansion? Uh, l- l- let me give you a, a snapshot of this recent, uh, you know, gathering where they invited t- t- uh, six new countries into to the BRIC coalition. You had Putin, who is, uh, you know, beamed in via video because he's uh, charged by the International Criminal Court as a, as a war criminal for his actions in Ukraine, specifically taking children out of Ukraine to, and, and bringing them to Russia against the will of their families and against the will of their country. Um, you had China talking about what a bully uh, America was uh, around the world. So there, the, the concern, obviously, is that you know, the, we're, we're seeing blocks, much much like we did during the Cold War, and the BRIC block is growing. So it's the global South, uh, uh, you know, developing countries, uh, sort of middle tier countries, and it's very uh, anti G. I mean, it's it's a it's a counterweight to the G seven of, de, of of democracies. So the concern is that we're seeing this sort of Cold War like blocks grow, and uh, and that that's going to lead to. Uh, problems down the road where, um, you know, for instance, they're talking about uh, replacing the dollar as the international, uh, you know, currency of reserves and trade. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard not to say, well, it's, it's their right. And, and certainly there is reason to believe that the global South needs a bigger voice in international affairs. But there is a downside to this because there is a certain anti-Western tilt to uh, the BRICS and it's growing. Nancy, to that point, what conversations were happening about Russia and the war in Ukraine at this summit? Well, while Putin was not there because under the International Criminal Court, there was a uh, worldwide warrant for his arrest, he did um, defend his conduct of the war in Ukraine and uh, made a very impassioned case for it and basically justified his actions in the war. We also sort of heard from um, nations who, uh, like China, who didn't directly address the United States, but made sort of um, backhand um, comments about the United States. And so um, there was an attempt, I think, um, by Russia to sort of show that it had um, alliances, if not in the traditional sense, certainly that that this um, group and now expanded group um, could be a counterweight to the um, arguments in the West about the conduct of the war itself. David, James was also mentioning this idea of using a currency other than the dollar that was proposed by Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Uh, Putin, by video link at the summit, said he would be for switching trade currency away from the dollar. What are economists saying about this? Economists are pretty skeptical for now, but there are some real reasons why countries like Russia, countries like uh, Brazil would like to move away from the dollar. Basically, there's two reasons. One is that using the dollar... Uh, does expose you to incredibly effective American sanctions. And that's certainly something that the uh, Russians take very seriously. It's certainly something that the Chinese take seriously. They've watched ha- what's happened to countries like Iran. Because because the dollar is so unbelievably dominant, 
by saying that American banks or any bank that does business in America can't do business with, say, Iran. That's the same thing as the American government being able to say Iran has essentially no access to the mainstream international banking systems, the kind of pipework that runs all international trade. So you can see that every time America uses those dollar sanctions very, very effectively, that gives countries a big incentive to try and do something different and to try and use different currencies. And we are seeing the Chinese and the Russians, for example, uh, agreeing to have massive oil and gas sales from Russia to China and the Chinese get to pay with their Chinese currency. And so America doesn't get to have a say on those transactions. But here's the kicker. And this is what you saw actually the, the, the Goldman Sachs banker, Jim O'Neill, who originally coined the idea of the BRICS being a potential large block of developing countries, saying that it doesn't work to imagine they could form their own common currency, which is one of the ideas we've heard in recent days, because they simply don't agree on enough. Because remember, you know, think about the euro. European countries get on pretty well. They are pretty much aligned as Western democracies. And even they sometimes struggle to make people believe that the single currency is a stable thing that other people would like to own in large quantities. And the BRICS are so much more disparate. So they find it so much harder to agree. So the idea of them issuing a common currency is really hard to imagine anytime soon. And even when the Russians uh, accept Chinese money for their oil and gas, the problem with that is that the Chinese currency cannot be spent freely. It's not a hard currency. So if you accept payment in Chinese money, you can basically only spend it in China with Chinese companies. So you don't have the same freedom or security if you don't use the dollar. So there's a lot of political ambition to get away from the dollar because it loosens America's ability to use those crippling sanctions. But not much realistically going to change very, very soon. A big thank you to our guides this hour. Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. James Kitfield, Senior Fellow at the Center for the Study of Presidency and Congress. And he's also author of the book, In the Company of Heroes, The Inspiring Stories of Medals of Honor Recipients from America's Longest Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began. And before we wrap up the roundup, calling all monster hunters. This week, volunteers from across the globe will participate in person and online in what's believed to be the largest surface watch for the Loch Ness Monster. Far in the Scottish Highlands at 22 square miles and with a maximum depth of 788 feet, Loch Ness is Great Britain's largest lake. And legend says that somewhere beneath the surface of Loch Ness lies the sea beast Nessie. At least, that's what monster hunters and Nessie enthusiasts from around the world hope to prove on Saturday and Sunday. The Loch Ness Center and the research group Loch Ness Exploration have invited aspiring monster hunters to join in on the biggest search since 1972. The Loch Ness Center says there have been more than 1,140 official Nessie sightings to date. And the center's general manager says he's excited to see what turns up after the waters are searched like never before over the weekend. The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Costano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast with help from Jorgelina Manorea. 
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. It's now the Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the Mash. It's caught on in a flash. It's now the Mash. It's now the Monster Mash. Now everything's cool, Jack's a part of the band. And my Monster Mash is the hit of the land. For you, the living, this mash was meant to when you get to my... Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.